It's Monday, October 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, gents. Hello. It's Halloween week. It is. So we will we will of course talk about candy at some point. You know, uh, I actually had to take my daughter out yesterday to I didn't have to. I mean, I volunteered as a loving and doting father. I was going to say. My younger my younger was at a play date and so the older we were like, "Well, what could we do?" So we would go we went out to the nursery and we got our big pumpkin for, you know, we'll make our jack o' lantern. But she she's had the the foresight to really plan her costume out. And so she wanted to get her nails painted to go with her costume like the color so I took her to the nail place and I let her get her nails done. Toenails too. Wow. I know. And now I'm compelled to ask what is this costume that requires nails and uh, being this painted? This is what I could not believe. <laughs> With a $5 tip included, it was 20 bucks in and out of there. I think that's pretty fair. That is pretty fair. You know, considering I can't paint nails. Yeah, no, and, no, and no. Typically no. when they do it, it doesn't really, you know, end up clean. So what's her costume? Uh, she's going to be it's it's sort of like a maleficent character except it's a little bit a little bit of a spin off of that so it's kind of like a maleficent costume without the horns she's like a shadow witch or something like that it's one she kind of made up on her own Halloween. but i got to say it's pretty cool we ordered some neat little things for it nice halloween definitely a big deal here at the Motley fool i would say of the 300 people who work here at least a third of them dress up are you one of them taylor are you going to be dressing up on friday i think i dressed up my first year I don't think I dressed up last year though. I did. I had a pretty. I had. A, I did the first year. I had this the money costume. My my wife actually got me when we lived in Egypt. It's like the big, you know, chic Galabea with the the like the red sort of plaid Saudi Arabian headdress thing. So you know, I came in as like a big, you know, I was a big millionaire chic oil guy. Nice. Had a cigar and some shades on. Are you going to rock that again on Friday? I'm not. You know, I actually saw the <laughs> dare on Jingle for someone to come in dressed up like Twisty the Clown from American Horror Story. I did Story. see that too. Yeah. That would be, you want to talk about scary clowns. Like, clowns kind of freak me out anyway, but have you seen that? No. Oh, my God. Well, the statue of the Sharknado costume from last year is still over there in our member services. Member services yeah, that department. was strong. Yeah. yeah. That was strong. It lit well, up and everything. We'll have to report back next Monday okay. on, on what were sort of the epic costumes. Because i got to say, there are some incredibly creative people yes, there are. who really go all out on Halloween. I think we had a fashion show last year for it. We did, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a contest. <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh, market. Speaking of culture, (laughs) let's just do the disclaimer. We'll be done. No, we're going to dip into the full mailbag, but we got to start um, with the battle for your wallet. And I have to say, this is quickly emerging as one of the most interesting battles in the business world. We talk about the battle for the living room, but the battle for the wallet is really getting interesting. Apple Pay, which Apple unveiled uh, a few weeks back. A little showdown with some drugstores over the weekend because CVS and Rite Aid reportedly disabled the Apple Pay service within their locations. And combined, you're talking about 12,000 plus pharmacies in the US, very much a shot across the bow of Apple Pay. And then you dig into it a little deeper, Jason, come to find out that. CVS, Rite Aid, they are part of something referred to as the Merchant Customer Exchange, a group of businesses who are working on their own mobile payment system. Big businesses. Big, uh, yes. Big businesses. Yes. Walmart, Best Buy. Walmart, Lowe's, Target. Well, the interesting thing about this currency uh, platform is it doesn't, it doesn't even involve like the card issuers. Like It completely eliminates them from the process. Obviously, 
they wouldn't be very happy because as I understand it, now I could be wrong, please any of our dozens of listeners out there correct me if I am, but it sounds like the currency uh, platform would just link straight up to your checking account. So mm-hmm. it basically works in lieu of a debit card. So it eliminates that sort of middleman. And, and well, I don't think Visa and MasterCard would like that very much. But uh, I wouldn't think so. You know, I mean, it, like on the one hand, I understand the fear there of having something that's just linked directly to your checking account. But I mean, on the other hand, that's what a debit card is too, right? So. Um, I mean, we've heard a lot of people talk about how to sort of overcome the security issues with your debit card, and I've always thought, well, hey, one of the things I like to do is just use my American Express credit card and just pay it off as I go along, and that way any fraud issues is just American Express's problem. They can deal with it, and I'm never stuck in a cash crunch. Uh, but, I mean, I think this just lends itself to the bigger sort of idea that this is this is going to be a, a huge opportunity out there. Um, and with all the press that Apple Pay has made, uh, you know, I mean, let's let's not forget what PayPal has accomplished to this point, right? I mean, there there is uh, there are a lot of questions out there with, with Apple Pay still, and, and it's going to be as as penetrated as as there are iPhones out there. But PayPal certainly crosses uh, many platforms as well, and um, yeah, it's just going to be a big market opportunity for sure. I think you know when you look at what they're trying to do, it's it's pretty self serving. I mean, it, they're trying to bypass the credit card fees, so they're going to. I guess it's like 2% in most cases to Visa, MasterCard, or American Express, so saving them money, but it's not doing anything for the consumer because it's much more complicated of a process. You look at Apple Pay, I'm a user of Google Pay, um, which is pretty much identical to um, Apple Pay, except you know your your credit card is more linked to it, so it's not as quite anonymous. So, how, sorry to interrupt, but how no problem. Did, for for a geezer like me, how does that work? Is that is that set up through your phone? It is. Yeah, you plug in your credit card information. Whereas Apple Pay, um, you don't put your credit card information directly into your phone. It's through iTunes, and they just it's like a. a Serial number that they give each purchase. It's an added layer of security. Right, right. Um, Google Pay or Google Wallet has something similar, but it, it's uh, started a, a little while ago. I've been using it for a few months now, and you just type in a PIN number, hold your phone up to the the uh, little kiosk thing. A lot of the companies now are including them because the, you got to have these chips in the cards coming up. So Whole Foods and a lot of the big retailers are buying new uh, payment kiosks, and all I do is hold it up to it. And it gives me a little sound, and then it gives me an authorized PIN number uh, telling me, hey, you know, you purchased $7 of food at Whole Foods for lunch. Super easy, but this one, it doesn't do that. You have to take out your phone and take a picture of the QR code, I guess is what they call it, those little scrambled squares of uh, imagery. And so it's a lot longer process. That's the currency thing. Currency, yeah. yeah. So for the consumer, it seems like it's way more of a hassle than even taking out your wallet and swiping your card. It's just bypassing fees for these retailers. Which, by the way, uh, is this the very definition of first world problems? I, mean, I think so. I mean, like <laughs> referring to taking your wallet out, pulling out a card, swiping it as being a hassle. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I part of me looks at this and thinks, as a consumer, while there may not be any sort of immediate win, I don't need to make any sort of decisions as long as I'm fine with just sort of the current process. It does, however, seem like if you're a merchant, the days of, well, I have to accept these credit cards mm-hmm. and what I have to pay out in fees, it seems like those get days are, if not disappearing, they are certainly on their way to disappearing. It seems like if you're a merchant, you're going to have a lot more choices about what you're willing to accept in mm-hmm. terms of fees that you pay out. 
and then what you're going to offer your customers. Well, I just wonder, I mean, what's stopping Google or Apple from doing this same thing with a better operating system than these merchants are doing? Because far more people have iPhones that I'm assuming go shopping at Walmart or CVS. You put them all together, you're probably looking at the same customer size. But between Android phones and Apple, I mean, these stores don't touch that size of a customer base. So I want to see them appeal to the customer just like Apple and Google are because it's so easy. And I, I'm waiting for somebody to have a George Costanza commercial showing the, how fat his wallet was and the back pain it was causing and how these problems can be rectified. Well, like when we when we went to the nursery yesterday to go get the pumpkin, I mean, I actually paid with cash. And it was funny because the, the, the actually looked at me cash. and she was like, <laughs> like what's this? What are you doing? She, she had thrilled. her iPad out with the she square was, she on it. She was thrilled because she knew that there wasn't going to be, it was an $11 purchase, right? I mean, it's this it was a pumpkin. <laughs> I mean, but but there was you know it was cash. It was simple. It was in and out of there, and there were no you know there was no friction. There were no. They're not going to have to deal with any fees involved there, at least on the you know card processing side. But I think I mean to Taylor's point there, I think that regardless, we know there are going to be a lot of different sort of competitors in the space, and really it does boil down to friction, right? I mean, the point of this security is obviously a very big issue, but it it is it's a matter of convenience, right? I mean, it, the the dream is to be able to just pay for something with just a click beep done out of there. And so friction is going to be the key there. And I, I was reading something here this morning about sort of a, a Panera experience where they're saying, well, if you went in to pay with your um, Apple Pay, uh, you know, platform, your phone at, at, at a Panera, if you still, if you wanted to use your Panera card, you still have to actually physically give them mm-hmm. the Panera card or, or, if, if the Panera card is associated with the app on your phone. But either way, it was one more sort of added bit of friction there. Whereas, like, if I go to Starbucks, I just pay with the Starbucks app, and, and I'm done with it. And, and everything involved with my Starbucks relationship is just done right in that one transaction. So it's 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 sort of interesting to see how you approach this from uh, you know a, a merchant standpoint. And the, that current C that you're talking about, they can incorporate loyalty programs into yeah, that they, app for all those different well, stores. That so sense, that helps. Guess, yeah, so that if you can good. combine Apple or Google Wallet with this currency thing, then you'd have a then you'd have a winner. It's going to be interesting to watch how this all plays out. It is. <laughs> Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, let's get to a, a few email questions. From Eric Zeller in Sonoma County, California. For the first time, I have about two to $3,000 I can invest in something besides my retirement account, but I want to keep it fairly liquid for the next six months, particularly as I may have a tax hit next year and I might need it. I've read that money market funds are supposed to be good for this sort of short-term investment, but all of the funds I've looked at have had zero performance this year, and I'm worried that I'll spend more in commission fees than what I'll earn. Great question, and great that he is thinking through things like fees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to cupcake this one. I mean, very simply put, I mean, you, you just need to put that money in a savings account. Agreed. You need to do something that is literally cut and dry. Uh, I mean, it's a savings account should be free with the balance that you're maintaining there. And like, you have to just think about it from the perspective here that if it's a six month deal, your return. Is the availability, the the liquidity of that cash? That's your return. Is that convenience? Um, you're not going to make a substantial return in any case with with something like a money market or a CD or even an index fund or whatever it may be over the course of six months. Because of course, six months the market can certainly go down. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, money market funds, whatever it may be, where you're going to pay a commission, avoid those commissions at all costs. Take the liquidity as your return and just put it in a simple, basic savings account. Question on Twitter from at that Shih Tzu Cray. <laughs> uh, what would be your top, what would be your top five to ten picks for someone with a couple of decades? 
That's a simple question. Give me 10 stocks for the next 20 years. I like the boldness of the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. let's let's, let's throw out a few companies, maybe two or three, Taylor uh, and Jason, you as well, that you just think, you know what? If I woke up 20 years from now, I would be comfortable not only with the idea that these companies are around in 20 years, but that they're going to do pretty well. Uh, Google is one. I haven't bought it yet, but it's next on my list. They just seem to find their way into everything, and um, you know, healthcare, tech, uh, energy, home, uh, Internet of Things. I mean, they just—they're doing something in pretty much every aspect of your life. Um, I used to think they'd be too pervasive, but now, I mean, it just makes everything so darn convenient. Um, I'm a buyer of Google. Uh, lately, you've kind of seen the dangers of investing in pure energy companies, so I think a GE. Gives you that diversification, investing very heavily in energy, but they've also got their traditional industrial side of things, kind of shaking off the GE financial aspect of their business. So um, I like those two companies. I could sleep very soundly at night uh, if I if I did own them in my portfolio. Jason, yeah, I think the question was born of a tweet a tweet I sent out there a little earlier that said Amazon shares should come with a warning that if you can't think in decades, then just don't buy these. Um, they really should. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, I, I love the question, and and um, I mean, there are you know, it seems like it would be you know ripe for choices there. But actually, when you think in ten to twenty years, I think you have to be pretty careful there. I mean, Nike and Under Armour yeah. to me are two really good opportunities because they play into a huge market there is in sports. That's that's not something that's going to be disrupted by technology. It's something that's embracing technology and incorporating technology. And uh, Under Armour, I think, is just a compelling growth story with Plank there at the uh, at the helm. And uh, I mean, I, I still believe that Amazon is a wonderful you know long term uh, investment. I plan on holding my shares for that long. And then. Uh, Chipotle was another one. I think we've seen the first 21 years of what they've been able to do, and, and it's becoming very clear what they want to do over the course of the next 21 years. And uh, and that's another one I own that I, I plan on holding uh, indefinitely. So yeah, that was a, that was a good question to, to deliberate over the weekend. Yeah, when you're when you're thinking about you know buying and holding for that long, it can be kind of boring in the answers, especially if you're talking about stocks that you just feel comfortable without ever looking at again. Yeah. Uh, so you're not going to get too many exciting answers from a question like that, but you know. Long-term investors; those are some good companies to think about. From at Laser Nobserman, self-identified as listener number zero point zero five. What will save McDonald's? Sweet potato fries. You're welcome. <laughs> hashtag, I don't like sweet potato. Hashtag fries. dozens of listeners. You don't like sweet no, potato fries? No, man. I just I'm a, like I have a salt tooth. I guess more than a sweet tooth. But man, when I'm eating fries, they got to be fries. You just add salt to them. Yeah, Problem I, I, I like salted sweet They're potato fries. Sweet. Seems I like that or Brussels sprouts. Eat. You can get away with it these days. <laughs> Uh, from Sean Park, listener number 1,234, as a human capital consultant and foolish value investor, I love hearing you talk about the importance of organizational culture. Can you share a few specific ways in which you analyze and evaluate a given, organization, uh, given organization's culture that enables you to validate or disprove an investment thesis? Given there is no such thing as a right or wrong culture, though some may be healthier than others, I'm curious to hear your take on this topic, especially in the context of investment analysis. Uh, great question, and one of those things that I, I've never really thought about it in those detailed terms. I, I sort of approach organizational culture, or just culture in general, uh, in terms of well, it's the you know it's the old line about. Pornography. I know it when I see it. You know, it's just—it's like 
I just I don't really have a a, a very hard and fast set of uh, screens that I put a company through. But uh, Jason, what do you think? Well, so I I think that he made he made a good point there in the beginning there in regard to culture and the thesis. I would I would say number one, be very careful to not culture is not a thesis. It's never a thesis. It should never be a thesis. If you're basing your investment thesis on culture alone, then then I think you you need to be very careful. Um, I know that we like to hear the the old Peter Drucker tome culture eats strategy for breakfast. I you know I. I'm not a big fan of that statement. I'm probably running a little bit counter to some here, but um, I mean, I, I I don't like it because to me it it seems to it seems to minimize the importance of strategy. You know, culture eats strategy for breakfast is basically kind of telling me that strategy doesn't matter. Well, let me tell you, when 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 Starbucks was was in the cellar there and Howard Schultz came back, he didn't turn things around. You know, with culture. I mean, it wasn't culture at least alone. There were certainly some some strategic decisions made there. And when Steve Jobs you know, it got back into the swing of things there at Apple. It wasn't culture that turned that around. I mean, it was, it was obviously it was great products. So while culture may play a part in developing, you know, a wonderful business, it's it's not culture and culture alone. Uh, so you know, I, I think that today with social media, you can look at a lot of these businesses' social media uh, social media presence uh, presences and and get a better idea sort of how they approach things. I mean, check them out on Twitter and Facebook just to kind of see where they're where they're uh, you know. Uh, Sort of offering up their time and things that they're talking about, and then uh, you know, Glassdoor is one that I think a lot of people use to to get a better idea, and that that can offer you know a window in, into uh, you know some 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 more of what what a company's culture is about. I'm, I'm I'm a bit careful there as well because it's it's very sensitive, obviously, to the inputs, and and sometimes you can have people. Uh, who are maybe a little bit disgruntled, they offer up you know, an unfair opinion, or maybe people who are a bit jaded and, and don't really see the places where a company could could improve. So you have to obviously take that with a grain of salt as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree. I would never just buy a company just because their CEO is rated 100% on Glassdoor. Yeah. Um, you know, it's great to have that. I think your strategy should consider your culture and how it's going to be impacted, but it shouldn't be the ultimate driving force behind what the company's going to do or what you're going to do in your own portfolio. Well, and to Tee off of something you alluded to, Jason. There are different types of cultures, and certainly, what is the culture within the organization, which sort of gets to how do we as a company treat our employees? Mm-hmm. That's one way to look at it. How do you treat your customers? How do you treat all your stakeholders? Yeah. How do you treat Wall Street? Uh, you know, which can be sort of a double-edged sword. We've certainly seen examples of CEOs who go out of their way to really court Wall Street opinion, and sometimes particularly in the short term, that works in their benefit. We've also seen CEOs like Jim Sinegal at Costco and the decades that he ran that company, where he wasn't hostile towards Wall Street, but he basically didn't care. Mm-hmm. And certainly, anytime an analyst suggested to them, you know, if you just raise your prices just this much, it won't be... And he's like, no, that doesn't, no, that doesn't matter. How we treat our employees, how we treat our customers is much more important than how we treat you. Because yeah. <laughs> he's trying to be around, he's trying to have Costco be around much longer than that analyst is going to be right. covering that company, which is probably only going to be a couple more years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jeff Bezos, I think, is another great example of someone who's obviously not given into the whims of Wall Street ever. I mean, we know quarter and quarter, and he just doesn't care what Wall Street thinks, and he's not running his company on that on that basis, and and I I'm sure there would probably be some who would argue that the the culture within Amazon could be 
um, you know, maybe a bit more attractive, at least from the from the employee's side. It sounds like he's a pretty tough guy to work for, from oh, what yeah. I've read and seen. Oh, if you watch um, that CNBC primetime documentary on Amazon that yeah. David Faber did, you absolutely come away with that. But but does that business does that business succeed in the long run if 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 it's a CEO who's a bit more uh, you know who who lays down a bit more and maybe doesn't uh, demand so much? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying it's it's one of those things that that yeah, it's it's nice to find great cultures like that. Berkshire Hathaway, another great example. Markel, I think, good examples of companies with cultures that we really like because good cultures can instill trust for for long term investors, right? You can feel better about holding those businesses for longer periods of time, uh, but just be careful not to to make it an investment. Yeah, I look at it as a tiebreaker. Yeah. Maybe a yeah, reason that's, not that's to buy point. a company, yeah. not a reason to buy a company. There you go. Before we wrap up on the Motley Fool Money Show on Friday, we talked about Halloween candy, overvalued and undervalued. <laughs> Jason, Jason, you weighed in with Junior Mints being undervalued, yes, and Smarties being overvalued. And I can't believe Anne is sitting there like shaking, just shaking her head at me like I shot her dog or something. I mean, she's telling me Smarties are all that. Well, and candy, you know, Anne Henry behind the glass, living proof that candy is a very personal choice. It is. She's a big fan of Smarties, so she's she's taking the other side of that trade. And I appreciate that. But you you said, we're going to get to Taylor's picks in a minute. You said you wanted to change yours, or you had an experience? No, I don't want to change, but I did want to add one more in there because I had a Butterfinger over the weekend, like just a little Halloween sized Butterfinger. We have some stuff at home. And man, oh man, that just reminded me how much I like Butterfingers. So those are probably pretty undersold. Yeah, you know, those are pretty strong. Taylor, what about you? Overvalued, undervalued? Overvalued is Kit Kat. Really? Me. Yeah, I think there's way better chocolatey options out there than a Kit Kat. I don't know. It just Kit it's, Kat it's strikes dry. It's it's a dry candy. Again, for me. sticking with the stock analysis, Kit Kat strikes me as a fairly valued candy. <laughs> I don't know. They have commercials. It, it, they have commercials. They've got their own little jingle. They got to move the product, but yeah. it, it doesn't strike me. I, I, there's not a Kit Kat bubble. I, <laughs> I don't see anyone going on CNBC saying, "I can't believe it's trading at this price." Fair enough. <laughs> but go ahead, Kit okay. Kat. Undervalued. Yeah, Kit Kat's my overvalued. Undervalued is uh, we talked earlier. Charleston Chew. Now Charleston Chew gets at something that I was thinking when you mentioned Butterfinger, which is I think both those candies are better in the smaller size. I agree. For me, anyway, I, Charleston I, I would Chew, agree with that. I, which I think the original Charleston Chew was just this, like, it's just this huge, like five foot, like a, yeah, yeah, it's like a two foot, foot pull of marshmallow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then like the small ones, you freeze them, you break yeah. them up. Those yeah, are pretty tasty. Right, right. I agree. Um, I'm I'm going Junior Mints for undervalued. Nice. I, they just never disappoint, but they don't. But they don't do the big TV commercials right. and all that sort of thing. And uh, overvalued Toblerone. Why Why is Toblerone why does it have it's the, the repetition? shape? It's the triangle. It's different. People think, oh, wow, it's different. And it's also in airports. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh, look, I, I went to Europe and I brought you Toblerone. <laughs> it's like, really? I've seen it in like Belk and JCPenney and like one of those, you know, clothing stores. What the heck are you selling chocolate yeah. at the kiosk at the clothing I remember store? when I was a, a little kid, it was the shape. It was different. Yeah. And that was what's it. Wow, what's that? I've never seen yeah. a triangular candy bar before. That must be good. <laughs> oh, I got it from Europe. Did you really? Well, no, I got in the airport when I got back from Europe. Duty free. Eh. Tweet us at MarketFoolery or email us radiotool.com. One overvalued candy, one undervalued. We'll be doing this all week. 
Jason Moser, Taylor Muckman. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.